Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ian McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. And today on the show, we've got a serious topic. We're talking about divorce and separation. So how do you manage property transactions and what should you do when you're going through uh, divorce separation and what are some of the common themes that come up? And I thought we'd throw this in here since tomorrow is our second year anniversary and I wanted to talk about the opposite side. Now, this is a tough topic to discuss. It's not pleasant and there are so many emotions around it, which I can't even imagine going through. I mean, I personally haven't been separated or divorced, but I really think it is an important topic to discuss because there's so many emotions around it. Now, we're not going to be talking about negotiation or other assets or any of that. We'll leave that to your lawyers and other financial advisors. We're just going to talk about the real estate and the property side. And I want to start this, Andrew, by asking you, you know, you've had quite a few investors who have gone through really, really tough times going through separations. What are some of the challenges that tend to come up and what are some of the things you tend to think about sitting there when thinking about the financial side of it? Actually, Ed, I thought you were going to say there you've had lots of divorces, which isn't quite true, but yeah, lots of clients that have gone through this, sadly. And it is a really tense time. And often you might have someone that feels a bit worse because you know they're being left, for example, and someone that's leaving can sometimes make poor financial decisions at that time. And, and because people are angry at each other, I know there are instances where the negotiations can be a bit tough. So it's important to kind of keep a calm head on these things. But some of the issues around splitting and just divvying up the assets is that it can take some time. And also, you know, you might also be in a position where you're locked into mortgage rates and you're going to have major break fees. You might be locked into tenancies. You might trigger the Brightline test. It might just not be the optimum time to sell off your assets and you can't necessarily just keep them. So that's where it can be a bit of a challenge. It's not like people plan their divorce in line with their interest rate renewal. Well, let me ask you this, Andrew. I've always thought that if you get into this situation and let's say you've got maybe two investment properties, wouldn't the optimal thing to do be to not sell them, but both take one property each? Because the thing about if you're going through a separation and you sell a property when you didn't intend to sell it is you've got to A, incur sale costs, i.e. you've got to pay the real estate agent, you've got to pay even more legal fees. But also it, it takes time in order to sell those properties, you know, so you can't make a clean break. And I guess the other thing is, let's say that you've owned a property for four years and you've got one year left of the bright line test. You ideally don't want to sell that property because otherwise you're going to have to pay quite significant amounts in tax for properties that you otherwise wouldn't have if you waited another year too. You see many couples kind of divvy up their assets in that way if there are a couple of investment properties there. I know that there was a uh, investor that called me relatively recently and it sounded like it was a tense separation and as a result her husband was not interested in anything other than sell all the assets, take the money, split it in half and so they're going to be majorly disadvantaged by the amount of tax that they're going to pay under Brightline, breaking leases early, well I suppose you can't break a lease early, selling a property at probably not the optimum price or the optimum time. 
And actually, a few of those properties were in Christchurch, which was just starting to take off. And so I did say, maybe you can kind of have a bit more of a conversation around this. She said, there's not a chance. He wants them all sold. He wants the money. You know, he might want to go back overseas. So it's one of those things that it does depend on the situation. Ideally, though, if you can come to an agreement where you hold investment properties because neither are you are getting an individual benefit from that property, like if some person stays in the family home, if you can hold on to those properties, that's often better. I do know of a situation with one of our team where there was a separation. They'd been building an owner-occupied property. They separated and decided, we'll just keep that as an investment property, which I think is a really mature decision and financially will be the right one for them as well. Well, let me ask you this. It's, it's interesting to dig into that detail you talked about before about breaking tenancy. So just to dig into that a little more, that would be, let's say you've signed up for a 12-month fixed tenancy with somebody and you're six months of the way through that and the unfortunate has happened, one partner now wants to sell that property. So what you're looking at there is having to sell with a tenant. And the issue behind that is that the new person purchasing that property, you're now limiting yourself only to investors most of the time. I mean, an owner occupier could purchase the property and then give notice to the tenant and say, we want to move into that. But generally what would recommend people do if you were to sell the property is move the tenant on so that you can sell it vacant because that would generally be more valuable. If you're selling it with the tenant there, you tend to get a slightly lower price because of that. That's kind of what you're saying, right, Andrew, when talking about opportune times Absolutely. as well. And of course, you know, if you're buying an existing property and it's got a tenancy in place, then the rules apply that you need to have a 40% deposit. So a first home buyer cannot buy that property unless they've got a 40% deposit. So you're seriously limiting the amount of people that you can sell that property and that will affect the price that you achieve. So what you can do in some instances, and I've seen this happen a few times, is if there's a portfolio, so say there's four properties that are investments, what might happen is the couple might split, separate out those properties, both parties get say two properties, and then they'll take the respective mortgages, they'll take the respective value in that property, and if there's a disparity in the numbers, then what they'll do is someone will compensate the other person in cash by topping up that mortgage in order to keep those properties individually. Now, a great thing about that is that means that you're not going to trigger bright line. So those properties, say you've owned them for two years and you're under the five-year bright line, you move the properties into your name. If you sell them over the next three years, then yes, you will trigger bright line. But moving them into your individual names, there is an exemption. And so you're not going to trigger bright line unless you change entity or something like that. If it just goes into the individual's name, might be a bit different if you've got a company, for example, because then it's got to move into an individual name or a new company name. You'd have to talk to your accountant about that but say it's in joint names and going to an individual's name then you're not going to trigger bright line again we're not the tax experts but you need to talk to your accountant about that but that's how I understand it where that can sometimes be an issue though is say you've got a couple and one person's decided to stay at home and look after the kids and they're separating, they might not be able to carry the mortgage across into their individual name so if there's no income and there's no ability for them to have that mortgage, there's going to trigger a reassessment at the bank. And so all of a sudden, one person can have the mortgage, but the other person can't. That's where you can run into trouble. So you might revert back to that initial plan of, okay, well, we've got two years left on Brightline and we've got tenants in there. Let's plan this out. We'll hold them for another couple of years and then we'll separate it. But just bear in mind, 
you can still go through the, the process of coming to that agreement and documenting all that because the last thing you want to do is come to an agreement, not formalise it with your lawyers, and then someone meets another partner, all of a sudden there becomes all this tension, and then issues arise later on. Well, that's an interesting one because I'm interested in that situation where one partner's on a higher income, one's on a lower income, and then there's a separation and, and the one on the lower income can't afford the mortgage. Let's say each gets one property, they're the same value, they've got the same mortgage, but one can't afford the property they're getting. Is in that situation, the property that that person was going to take, you sell that and then you split the sale costs? Or how does that work in that situation? Or is it negotiated beforehand or, you know? You could do it that way. But again, I think that probably would cause some friction in the negotiations. I'd say that the person who can't take the mortgage out might feel disadvantaged and then say, no, I just want to sell everything. I don't want you to get the benefit. And then I guess the partner that can raise a mortgage, they've got every right to buy that property on the open market, perhaps. But in that situation, let's say they bought it on the open market. Does that mean they wouldn't have to pay bright line tax or their share of it? Uh, that's actually a really good question that I don't know the answer to. I guess there would be a sale and purchase, but I assume that that would happen anyway. I'm not sure. We'd have to check it out. Next question then that I want to get into, which is probably more applicable and almost applicable to anybody listening to this podcast. What happens in the situation, you and I now enter in a relationship and I decide <laughs> to leave you and you decide <laughs> that you right. want to buy out the family home you want to buy out the, that would definitely be the other way around, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> let's say that you want to buy out the family home from me, you want to stay there. How does that work? Do you have to raise a whole new mortgage? What happens in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. So at that point, and actually one of my really good friends has just gone through this scenario. So he and his partner separated or his wife separated. She left. He wanted to continue to live in the owner-occupied house. Now, what they had to do is they had to go and get a valuation to establish the value, work out what the equity was in there. That got split and he had to raise a mortgage for the amount to pay her out. So he had to go to the bank and say, right, my mortgage, I'm just going to make up the numbers here. My mortgage is 300 grand. I've got to pay 400 grand of equity out to my ex. And so therefore my mortgage has to go to 700K. And then of course the bank looks at it and says, well, is there enough equity to still protect us? If there's not, then you're going to have to sell. Have you got the ability to service it? If not, you're going to have to sell. And so there's a whole new mortgage application on you as an individual. Going back to that example before we spoke about the two people and someone on no income, there is also the situation that I've seen before where maybe someone's on a part-time income and they can afford the debt collectively, but not individually. So even though the person that's on, say, full-time has a higher income, if they can't sustain the mortgage by themselves, then tough luck, you've got to sell as well. God, it's tough, isn't it, when you start going through these situations? Another example of where it gets really tough is if maybe there's rules around LVR. So, of course, as we know, LVR restrictions have come in. If you'd gone to the bank and you'd borrowed 90% on your own house and then you'd maxed out your lending ability when you had the opportunity to and you were 80, 80, 80, 80 on, on some investment properties, and then, of course, you agree that you're going to sell off a couple of properties, what you'll find is the bank might take 
those sale proceeds and apply it to other debt. So if the arrangement is, hey, I'm going to sell off a couple of rental properties, that's going to give one person some cash to go and buy another house so we can hold on to those rentals for a while, you might not be able to do that. So you do have to have conversations with your bank pretty early on. Just a wee word of caution there. Telling the bank that you're separating is a pretty serious thing. They will freeze your bank accounts. So as soon as you tell the bank that you are separating, a freeze goes on all of your joint accounts until you've legally formalized your separation. What you don't want to do, as I remember one of my clients at BNZ have happened to him, is tell someone on 24-hour banking before you tell your wife. Because then when she goes to use her FPOS card at uh, the cafe, which happened, all of a sudden it declines, she rings the bank and finds out that she's separating. (laughs) <laughs> that's so bad that's terrible i'm sorry for laughing makes the conversation easier though doesn't it ed <laughs> imagine you just have to decline those phone calls what what the bank said what the bank said <laughs> now okay look one last question Andrew, and this is a, an interesting one that i want to get your take on let's say that Okay, it's me and you again. We've got some investment properties and we've got the family home. So two investment properties and the family home. The investment property deposits were funded from the family home. So how do you unbundle that? Let's say I take my investment property and you're going to stay in the family home. How do I unbundle that security? Because, of course, there's still maybe 100k revolving credit secured against the family home. Yeah, this is where it gets really tough. So... Probably to be able to make this work, you need to be able to have the debt in your own names. So I do know of instances where people haven't been able to unwind everything. Someone gets the family home. Let's say the wife decides she's going to have full custody and they want to live in the family home not to disrupt the kids. But there's these ties to the investment properties. And I've seen this exact scenario. He said, look, there's a little bit of equity in those. I'll take those in my name. What they did in that situation was carry some of the debt on the owner-occupier until that could be refinanced out. But to be honest, that's probably quite a high risk because if he stopped paying the mortgages and then the owner-occupied house, which is hers at that stage, is up for grabs, then that's a real issue. And I know the lawyers had a problem with this. So you need to actually be able to work out hey, look, am I going to be able to take these assets and hold them in my name alone, secured by just those securities? If you can't, you're probably going to have to sell. This is some tough stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and the last thing I want to say there is often people make really poor financial decisions in these times, especially if someone's aggrieved. I know that one of my investors from years ago, because he was leaving his wife, he felt so guilty about it that he pretty much gave her everything. And I remember saying to him at the time, I understand why you're making this decision, but you're going to regret this one day because you're basically starting afresh financially. He did it in the end and he was quite happy with that. It didn't make it any better in the separation, but it is important to take a calm approach to these things. Great if you've got a relationship property agreement and you've kind of had this conversation in advance, but even if you don't, just be fair to both parties or else you'll end up just having a really hard time. I guess the tough thing as well though, Andrew, is that people's perception of fear is probably different in these situations. So, you know, you and I get divorced. What you think is fair and what I think is fair are possibly two different things depending on what's happened. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. 
Just a couple of other podcasts to listen to. Check out episode 531 of the Property Academy podcast. That's where we talked about getting a relationship property agreement. Should you get one? How do you put one in place? And then also 601, 601. That was, we had a really good horror stories episode where we talked about what goes wrong in relationship property agreements with Jenny Turner from Win Williams. That was a really good podcast. Now, I know it's a tough one to think about. There's probably way more we can dig into in future episodes as well, Andrew, because there is so much to talk about here. And actually, it's a problem that a high percentage of couples will unfortunately need to go through. And it's just a fact of life that we should speak about. Look, let's wrap up there. But just before we do, I've got one more review for you. This one comes from Anna5247. It's a five-star review. who says, high-quality podcast. Won't read it for you all, but says, I've gone from knowing nothing to learning the basics and more. I'm young, but I've been so inspired by the podcast, and I'm keen to get out there and invest in the property market. Look, Anna, we thank you so much for listening to the show and for leaving us that rating for review because that really does help us get the message out to more people and keep us high up there in the charts. And again, I just want to say I'm so grateful that you're kind of allowing us to be part of your investment journey. So let's wrap it up there. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It does help us get the message out to more people. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. It is our second year anniversary, episode 731 of the podcast. Make sure you tune in. It's going to be a banger. We're going to talk about what we've learned from the last two years recording the show. And also make sure you turn up for our webinar on the 21st of September, that's a Tuesday at 7pm, we're going to talk about building a diversified and robust property portfolio. Links down in the show notes, tap or swipe over the cover art, or go to opuspartners.co.nz, you'll be able to sign up there. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast, I'm your host, Epic Light. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. We're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, texts and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.